After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi, everyone. This is Raghu Marcus, and I just want to do a little bit of an introduction to uh, this next podcast and to this wonderful guest that David and I had a chat with, Lama Tsultrum Alioni. And we've uh, had a podcast with her before. And I always say, and David and I always say, actually, it is so great when somebody can actually give us a few pointers, a few little practices, something to do in the midst of our day to help balance our lives. And in this case, she talked about what has gone on uh, in Europe and in Paris and in Beirut and in Mali and uh, regarding how we can look inside ourselves and deal with these very, very difficult emotions. So uh, this this is just a, a super podcast that I, I really wanted to let everybody know that uh, there's some valuable little practices, not just wisdom, and that's uh, a big boon for us. At the same time, I also wanted to encourage everybody, since this is the gift-giving season, and uh, we, of course, from week to week to week, we ask for your support, and you have been giving it, and we... Uh, have been seeing just a wellspring of of support from everybody, whether it be recurring donations, which we've emphasized in the last uh, month or so. That's been happening. But it is the gift-giving season, and that means many of you, and many of us, for that matter, are going to be purchasing items through Amazon. They do deliver uh, really quickly, all the way up to the end of uh, December, right before December 25th. So if you can go to MindRolling or go to MindPod Network and either and right on the homepage there you'll see the link to uh, Amazon and it's a link that uh, you can bookmark and that will uh, mean that everything as you know and we, we're beating the horse a little bit up here um, but it it will help us because every we get a small percentage of all of the um, sales that you uh, make, uh, or purchases rather, that you make through Amazon. So I don't want to go too much further, but I do want to, since this is a season and it can really help us here at the end of the year uh, with uh, with support for what we're doing, we're really uh, making some progress with uh, the, the HeartMind app that's coming out in January with this wonderful audio retreat that we're going to be presenting 
I can't wait to uh, release that, which will be in, in uh, January as well. So here you go. This is David and I with Lama Sultrum Alioni. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mind Rolling. Raghu Marcus here with David Silver, my partner. And uh, we have uh, our guest today is Lama Tsultram Alioni of Taramandala. And uh, Lama is a very old friend and has been here before, but not in a long time, Lama. So we're really happy to have you back. Yes, Thank welcome. You. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. I'm, I, I'm going to start and get right into it. There uh, is, of course, the world is in a bit of turmoil right now. Mm-hmm. And I want to, uh, so we have a few things to talk about related to what's going on. And I think I want to start with uh, around perspective and reaching all the way back to when you, we found that there is a perspective possible in our lives to view, to get a vantage that uh can get us some balance, that we have the possibility of be ha- being happy. We can transform suffering in ourselves, that suddenly we, mm-hmm. we realize that this, this possibility has happened. Um, so I'd like to talk to you, uh, like you to talk a, a little bit about finding that initial perspective, nurturing it, cultivating it, uh, because I think it's really important that we can easily get, go astray uh, with our perspective in life, as things come up that are really uh, troubling. So can you just start out a little bit about, and maybe use yourself as an example of first finding, or even realizing that there was a possibility of a different perspective other than the ones of our habitual tendencies, etc., growing up? Yeah, so... I think there's two ways to to look at this kind of thing, um, talking about the situation in the world today. One is, how can I help? What what can I do to improve the situation? If anything, am I in a position to do anything? And then the second one is, what do I do with myself in this kind of situation? What do I do with my own mind and and, as you said, my own perspective? And so I'll, I'll, I'll speak to both of those. So from the point of view of what can I do, let's say we take the situation in France um, that we're experiencing in the moment in Beirut and all the various other places that we're finding um, sort of really random acts of violence that are, are um, just completely senseless. So what can I do? Well, there's several things. One of the things that practice of Tonglen, and Tonglen, it, it is a meditation practice, so it's not physically going there, doing something. And yet there's a lot of evidence, scientific evidence, that prayer and meditation actually does affect the physical realm and it, it's it's a benefit. It, it's healing for people who are experiencing illness and so on. So the principle of Tonglen is it means taking and sending, and it's a Buddhist practice. That's a Tibetan word, Tonglen, 
And what you do is you inhale the suffering, whichever suffering you're focusing on, or just general suffering in the world. But let's say we're, we're working with Paris. So what you would do is to tune into Paris, all of those people who are killed, all of the people connected to them, and also the suffering that has to be within the hearts and minds of those people that did it. And then you inhale that. You imagine that it's coming toward you through your breath. So you inhale. Let's, let's try this together. So inhale. Imagine that you're sort of like a vacuum cleaner. You're pulling this off them. So inhale. And as you reach the point of the breath turning around, flash on emptiness, and then exhale love and compassion. So inhale, flash on emptiness, and then offer back love and compassion. And it's almost like that what you're taking away from them is sort of hot and sticky and what you are offering back is like a cool breeze of relief and compassion. Let's try that again. So that's one thing that I think helps. Um, it's something that um, can be done by anybody. It's it's not. It is a Buddhist practice, but it's not like you don't have to believe in anything to do it. It's an offering to the situation, and I think what happens when we're confronted by something like that—that's so random. And so painful, and the stories of the individuals are so hard to hear. There can be a tendency to cut off, to not be present, to avoid it, because it hurts. It, it, it's painful to experience that. But part of the path of a bodhisattva is to not turn away, to stay present, even if it's painful for you, imagine how painful it is for them. So bearing witness, bearing witness, but not just bearing witness, actually being more active in the sense of actually imagining you can remove that and then offer back love and compassion. So that's a practice you, you can do in general for these kinds of situations. And you can also do, let's say you're, you're visiting someone in the hospital who's dying. You don't know what to say to them. There's nothing more to say. Maybe they can't even talk. You can hold their hand and just do Tonglen. And you're being present. And there's something about just presencing that is very powerful and very healing. People feel like they have to do something to fix it. 
when often the person just needs somebody just to be with them, just to be present. So that's uh, something that you can do in these situations. And then the second thing is how do you sort of step back and get a wider view and get perspective on this kind of situation? If we look at the whole situation of why, why are we running? Why are we going? Why are we killing? Why are we consuming? Why, why, why? You know, that it's all an outward movement. It's all going out to try to resolve a situation which is actually internal. And so I think that's what we learned when we went to India in the early days was we have to begin with ourselves. And so the reason that we're running and we have that sort of subtle sense and maybe not so subtle sense of dis-ease is because we have ruptured from the ground of being. The ground of being is our true condition. Our awareness radiated and is right now radiating from the ground of being. Or you could say that our awareness is a display of the ground of being. However, we fail to recognize that our awareness and all our physical world, all the phenomenal world, is actually a display of the ground of being. Through that failure, we get this fundamental experience of disease, of anxiety. The the Buddha called it dukkha. That drives us with passion, aggression, and ignorance. It's been driving us for lifetimes. And so with meditation practice, any meditation practice, really what we're doing is we're turning that outgoing, outflowing, outgrasping mind back. It's almost, it's almost like it was explained to me one time by a Lama where he, he actually took his hand and he moved his hand away like that. And then he said, it's like this, you do this. And so let's just try that for a minute together. So, so one thing that can be helpful is actually do, do kind of an extre- extreme form of grasping. So, so let's all try to think about something that either is really upsetting to us, we're angry about, or even something that we really want or that we're obsessing about. So let's just take a minute and try to feel that. Okay, so you feel the grasping. Now imagine that that very energy that's going out and grasping turns back and looks at itself.
So that's what's called awareness of awareness. And I imagine that what you felt and those listening felt when I said, now turn around, look back, is a feeling of release, of resting, of relaxing, stopping, opening. A lot of different words, but really it's not, it's not a verbal experience, it's a felt experience. And so this is possible to do at any time. You don't have to be on your cushion. You can be in a situation, let's, let's imagine that you're hearing this news about Paris. Maybe you do Tonglen, but also you can do this. Or maybe you've just, you're upset about something. Or you're grasping at something. You can just take your, first you have to become aware, of course, that you're doing it. But once you have that awareness, imagine that it's going out and then it turns back. Mm-hmm. And then you rest. So that's two possible approaches to question hmm. thank you great couple of practices there yes um, I and I um, I also wanted to just have you comment a little bit about practice especially meditative practice uh, we did a, a course through uh, love server member foundation ramdas.org as you know I'm involved with a mindfulness and meditation course taking some of Ram Dass's um, practices and Dharma talks. And one of the, I would say, one of the most common um, comments that we got from people was the difficulty they had with consistent practice and mm-hmm. And also trying to understand where Ram Dass talks about, we talked about, the importance of the consistency of of practice, yet to uh, make an effort from the wrong place, so to speak, uh, is can be counterproductive. So it's very subtle. So can you talk a little bit about the efficacy of practice and and the ways in which, uh, of course, the ego does take over <laughs> and tries to take over in different uh, aspects of it? Yeah. So. Uh, the ego never wants to practice. (laughs) That's just one thing to really keep in mind. Uh, And so when you you get, uh, start thinking about practice and you start thinking, well, maybe not right now or maybe later or tomorrow or, you know, in in a week, in a month, in a year, just, you should just know that's, that's not your sanity talking. That's a, um, that's your ego. And so, but then the question is, how do you work with that without getting into a battle with the ego and getting a lot of tension involved with it? So one of the ways that I suggest is to think about going to practice as going to see a lover. Hmm. When we're going to see a lover, we get there, right? (laughs) We're maybe even early. (laughs) 
uh, and there's a feeling in us of, of wanting to go mm. and wanting to make that connection with that person. And when you think about it, really, our, pra- our practice is making a connection with our true being, with our true nature. And it is, when we do it, it is pleasurable. I mean, maybe it's, it's challenging at times and doesn't always sort of work. But generally, we come out of it, even a bad meditation. And really, there is no bad meditation because any meditation that you show up at is good. But you know what I mean, when you're distracted and um, your mind's all over the place and so on. Even that kind of meditation is good because what you're doing is creating a habit. So we already have this habit of going out and grasping from morning till night. And even in our dreams and during the night, we're doing it. So we already have that habit. So we have to create a new habit. Retreats, you know, longer retreats and have a daily practice maybe twice a day. So then I think your question was, well, yeah, I know that, but how, how do I kind of get myself there without creating a lot of tension? So what I suggest to people is don't think you're going to do a long practice. Think, I'm just going to do 10 minutes. So you have to, in a way, sort of trick yourself. Uh, because when you think, oh, I'm going to sit for an hour, 40 minutes or whatever, that's, you know, then that resistance come, comes up. You think, oh, 10 minutes, yeah, I can do that. And then generally what happens is you get there for 10 minutes and then you're like, oh, I want to be here, I want to stay. Hmm. And so you sit for longer. So that's one, I guess you could say technique. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another one is to have it really at the same time every day. Hmm. And the first thing in the morning and now, you know, we get on our devices when we wake up. You know, it's kind of like any mail, you know, and and then that can lead into, uh, I mean, it could actually go on all day, yeah. you know, and I'm sure you have that experience in, in kind of work that you're doing and that involves a lot of internet communication. So try to, or throw your device onto the other side of the room or lock it out of your house or <laughs> do something with it. Make it really hard to get to. <laughs> Don't have it by your bed. And um, hold still in the morning, but if you don't turn it on um, and it's far away, and then you do your practice, maybe you do some movement also, some yoga or stretching, and then you can turn on your device. (laughs) But if you, I I really think this is a big problem. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, it's a, it's a modern problem. It's, it's recent, you know, and Mm -hmm. it used to be, we'd get mail once in a while, you know, I mean, like to get a letter once or twice a week was exciting. Mm -hmm. And we all love mail. We like being in touch with each other. And so now it's so exciting that you can get so much. Plus you can kind of 
be a voyeur in everyone's life on Facebook and <laughs> find out how they're all doing, you know. So, so that's, that's, a, that's a suggestion. And then to really have it stable in terms of time and that you just show up. You just go sit down and get onto your cushion because once you're there, generally it'll take care of itself. But one, one more thing, which is a little different. I mean, I said, well, just sort of trick yourself into saying it's just 10 minutes. But it is also good to decide how long you're going to practice. Because otherwise you'll be thinking, well, maybe this is enough. <laughs> you know, every, every five minutes. Well, maybe, yeah, I think I'm done, you know. So, so that's a few hints. Thank you. Wonderful. Yes, great. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the only slightly ironic thing about that is that when I do my practice in the morning, I use my iPhone as the timer. So I have to find <laughs> the iPhone before I do it. <laughs> but that's like... You should get another timer. <laughs> get one of those little Zen clocks. Yeah. Well, it actually makes a nice sound when it finishes. It's a very, you can choose a sound. It's a very yogic kind of chime, which I like. Uh, I wanted to go back uh, sort of to, not to Paris, but to that theme, mm -hmm. because I came across uh, something you wrote, which just, I, I just, I really want to read the whole thing, and I hope that isn't too long. Uh, I, you should read it, really, but I, I, I'll do it. Um, it's <laughs> with great pleasure, actually. It's from your piece called One Ground, Two Paths, Two Results. And um, I want to read it because it really was the first time I'd read something in 14 years about what happened in New York on 9-11 that took it just a step, well, not a step, a long staircase deeper into the soul. And I, I want to read it because I think it would be helpful to people at this time. Uh, the Twin Towers and Ground Zero. The vastness of the destruction and the sheer numbers of those who died in the attacks and the collapse of the Twin Towers on 9-11 created a huge mind-stopping shock, a collective experience of the ground, aptly named Ground Zero. I was stunned by the symbolism of the Twin Towers, an uncanny metaphor of the dualistic fixation that is the basis for straying from the ground. Suddenly, in a most horrifying way, collectively, we were faced with the real nature of conditioned existence and the emptiness underlying all our fabrications no matter how big or permanent they had seemed. In the moment of the collapse of the Twin Towers and out of the emptiness of Ground Zero, a universal experience of compassion arose. People all over the world became one with those people jumping from the, turning, the burning towers or being crushed by them. We were no longer separate. When there is an emptiness of self, there is an emptiness of other. And from this state, compassion naturally occurs. According to the Dzogchen teachings, those who died also experienced ground zero and the ensuing luminosity. At the moment of death, there's said to be an experience of the ground. The shining forth of the luminosity from ground follows and experience glorious light described in various ways by those who've had, quote, near-death experiences. Usually, this is not recognized 
And so then the being immediately journeys towards the next life. But if the person has been introduced to the nature of mind in this life and their karma is ripe, they may be liberated at the time of death. I pray that through the collective practice of many beings all over the world, on that terrible day, many of those who died were liberated. It is crucial to remember that each moment is potentially one of recognition. And we are actually always making the choice. One ground, two paths, and two results. Lama, I saw an interview with the rock band that was playing at the club in Paris that was, that was bombed, shot at, brutalized. And he said this. He said what was most remarkable to him was the fact that many people who knew that it was kind of final, instead of leaving, stood in front of their friends. Mm -hmm. And most of them died. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've been struggling with this since I saw this interview a couple of days ago. And then when I read your piece, I, you know, it changed the whole thing for me, actually, rather radically. Mm. Because I began to understand that Maybe that transition, as terrifying as it was maybe a microsecond before, it would be for all of us, I'm sure, that something happened, both to those who showed this sacrificial compassion of an inordinate kind and those who were dying. Having said that, I want you to, I want you to just talk a little more about that ground that is possible, even in those extremest of all, the most extreme of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really the same thing, isn't it? Um, about how there's wellspring of compassion is really so core in a human being. And I think we we saw that in 9/11 and we saw that in Paris it's that's very moving what you what you just said and then how is that connected to the ground i think when somebody makes a decision like that to stand in front of a friend and get shot themselves or stand in front of their girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever and take the bullet and to protect that person who maybe they don't even know that well. Yeah. That there's some knowing that even if I die, that I'm going to die embodying the greatest gift of human nature mm. and in that gesture there is some knowing of the ground there's some knowing that when I die I will go back to something that is freedom or I will have the possibility to be free. And so that juxtaposition of 
compassion, and what we would call in Buddhism bodhicitta. It, it, it's, it's referred to as, as raising bodhicitta. So it's really something that comes forth, rises in ourselves, and it's something that we can cultivate. And that's part of when I was talking about Tonglen in the beginning. That's a bodhicitta, that's, it's called a, a practice of relative bodhicitta of wish or aspiration, aspirational bodhicitta. And so with those kinds of practices of the four immeasurables, we actually train ourselves to develop that part of ourselves. It's, it, it's yeah, we, we move toward that. We, we train in it, which seems sort of funny to train in compassion because it seems like it has to be something spontaneous on some level. But we do need to train in it. And, and then it also arises more easily and naturally. But it's a beautiful thing that it is part of human nature with all the, the less attractive things that we have as human beings. That that comes up and that when you sort of get down to it, you know, in that kind of situation, I think, you know, they call it heroism, um, that, that so, something comes up and our selfish desires and so on take a back seat and something bigger comes forward. And that's precious. It's, we call it precious bodhicitta. Mm -hmm. And it's something to protect, something to cultivate, something that we need. We need to cultivate it now. Something, a, a beautiful piece of a man whose wife was killed. They had a son. Um, and he said, um, you're not going to get me to hate you. Mm. Did you see that? Yeah. 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 He, you know that you, you've taken, um, yeah. you've taken my wife, you've taken the mother of my 15 month old son, or I can't mm. remember exactly how old he was. Yeah. Um, but you can't take his happiness and I'm not going to become a hateful person. So, yeah, and I mean, certainly we would think he has a right, you know, to, mm -hmm. to, to be hateful, but that choice is precious bodhicitta. Would you mind explaining or defining bodhicitta for everybody uh, as well? Bodhi, Bodhi is um, awakening, and chitta is thought or heart. So it, it could be called the heart of awakening, or the awakened heart, or the thought toward awakening. It's one of those words that really doesn't translate perfectly, and therefore we leave it as bodhicitta. But there's relative and absolute bodhicitta. And relative bodhicitta is what we're talking about, where it's something that you generate and um, there's relative bodhicitta of aspiration like that or of action, uh, where I actually do things. And then absolute bodhicitta is really the ground, the experience of the ground of being. And 
it's beyond words and it's beyond cultivation. But through the cultivation of relative bodhicitta, we sort of fall into absolute bodhicitta. So they're, they're intimately connected and they might seem really different in a sense, but it's through one that we find the other. Mm. Huh. Mm. Would you also say, in terms of cultivating relative bodhicitta, and when we, as, as we just talked now, and as David mentioned, and, and you as well, about the natural arising of compassion exemplified by these people in that uh, concert hall, that there wasn't even thinking. There's a, there's a, a natural arising of compassion. Spontaneous. Spontaneous. Yeah. Is, I, I think of this in terms of when we talk about cultivation and love to, for you to expand on it. There's a way in which we can trust, never mind faith or anything so highfalutin, but trust in that experience that we all have, I think, at some point in our lives. And how do we cultivate that relative to compassion and love? So are you saying how do we cultivate the spontaneous? How do we cultivate <laughs> knowing this spontaneous compassion arises in us and we mm -hmm. have experienced have experience it? How do we cultivate a trust in ourselves? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That that will arise. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think the practices... Uh, of cultivation of aspirational bodhicitta, um, it's training, you know, and we might like to think, well, I'm always just going to be spontaneously compassionate, but generally it does need to be trained and taught and thought about and cultivated. And so Aspirational bodhicitta tonglen is one practice that I taught already. And then the other three are loving kindness. And there's ways to train in that. And then one that I really like is empathetic joy. Mm -hmm. We don't generally think about lack of compassion in terms of other people getting what we want. <laughs> um, and the, and the envy and covetousness that comes up with that. But it's, it's, it's sympathetic joy is how it was traditionally translated, but I like the term empathetic joy. And so it's really joy in the joy of others. And so if somebody tells you, oh, you know, I'm going to Mount Kailash and I'm going on this amazing pilgrimage and so on, you could feel envy, like, I wish I could go and I can because I have to work or I have a child or whatever. And just turn, turn that knowledge into envy. Or you could flip it. And when somebody has something that you would like, you can flip it into empathetic joy and, and ride on that joy, on their joy. I think now, you know, we're coming into the holiday season. 
And um, I always think about how as a child, I really did get more pleasure from what I gave than what I got. Than what I got, and I had this experience with. Um, of course, I still like getting my presents. You know, I'm not saying that, but um, with my granddaughter last year, and she, um, she was um, just about to turn six, and really excited about Christmas. Still believes in Santa Claus, you know, and just that sort of peak Christmas hype, and um, so she whipped through her presence in, you know, like probably 15 minutes. <laughs> and then she came and she sat next to me and she just looked down and she started crying. And, you know, and then her mom said, why didn't you like your presence? And I knew what it was. I knew it was that emptiness of getting what you want. And, materialism and I said Luna it's it's it it's like you got all that but it doesn't actually make you feel better right she was like yes momo <laughs> so you know when you give what the pleasure of that is empathetic joy so that's another cultivation relative bodhicitta is, is that and then the final one, which Patrubhaje taught as the first one, it's usually listed as last, but is impartiality or equanimity, and that's really holding equal feeling about someone that you like and someone that you don't like, or something that you like and something that you don't like. And so maybe we could—I just lead you a very quick meditation on this because it's so different to experience it than talk about it so let's um visualize on your right side is the person most beloved to you it could be a child a grandchild it could be a lover it could be just good friend but your most beloved person i really feel them sitting there Feel their presence and how pleasured, pleasurable it is to have them close to you. And then on the other side, your most difficult person, the person you really don't want to have close to you, you really don't like. Maybe even you hate them, but they're there and they're right there next to you. Notice, notice how that feels. That really want to push them away and really distasteful to have them there. And now experience both at the same time that they're, they're really liking and they're really not liking. And then drop them both and just feel an equanimous love for them both, not wanting the close one and not, not wanting the enemy. Just drop it and be with them both with equanimity.
And notice the freedom and the vastness that that gives you. Mm. Oh, that's equanimity. Very difficult. That's a hard, that's a hard one. Could you feel it though? Could you oh, feel yeah. it when you dropped yes. it? Yes. yes, absolutely. Great uh, little practice, Lama. Yeah. Wonderful, yeah, wonderful. Really. Uh, mm. it, it, of course, when we talk, it, it makes me think about um, emptiness, which is such a central tenet of Buddhism, emptiness, and and it yeah. has such a difficulty for so many people. Um, and uh, so, it's probably a good segue uh, for a moment. Emptiness. And I was empty of self, empty of self-cherishing is, is always the way I immediately go to it, not a nihilistic empty of any sort. Yeah. Yeah, emptiness is, um, it's, it's again one of those words that we don't, doesn't really work in English, in, in uh, Sanskrit, it's shunyata. In Tibetan, it's Tongbani. Mm. And um, Shunya, Shunya Ta, you know, it's, it's, it's a release. It's a release of how we thought things were. So when I say I'm empty, it's not that I'm empty, like I don't exist. Obviously, I'm here, I'm talking. I have a body and so on, but I'm empty of what I think I am. <laughs> and, you know, I think I'm something, you know, I think I'm someone, you know, I have a name, I have an identity, and that's who I am. But if I really look at that and try to find it, like, okay, where, you know, will the real me please stand up? <laughs> you know, yeah. Where is that me? Where is it? You know, is it, is it what I do? Is it what I say? Is it what I wear? Is it my body? Is it my mind? And then if, if we look at it, you know, like, well, what about what others think of you? You know, but then you think, well, for my grandchild, I'm her grandmother. Mm. For my children, I'm their mother. For my students, I'm their teacher. You know, if I'm buying something in a store, I'm just a client. And so where is the, the, the self there? You know, you, you, can't, you can't find it. And it's the same with phenomena, like, you know, a table. Well, yeah, the table's there, but where's the table? <laughs> you know, like, where do, when does it start to be a table? Is it the, is it the wood? Is it the the legs, is it the name? And so emptiness is really very freeing because when we let go of that sense of solidity of ourselves and our world, there's a, a freedom and a magic. And that's really where the siddhas and siddhis take place, a, a city like, like what Maharaji had, of, 
let's say his omniscience, for example, you know, being able to know things or um, disappear, reappear, objects come and go, or, you know, I've seen lamas put their hands into stone. So how, do, how does that happen, you know? How does that take place? It's by understanding emptiness. Not intellectually, but really knowing emptiness. When we know emptiness, the world as we see it and the solidity of the world as we see it is, is not there anymore. And so there's freedom to do things that we think is magic. But it's not magic. It's knowing how things are. Mm. Mm. Yeah, you know, last week I was in a particularly bad mood. And um, when I went to sleep, and uh, I fought it off, sort of. But then I went to sleep, and then uh, at the end of a night of dreams, and usually I count five to six dreams, I suppose, and uh, the last dream was a beautiful, pleasant, optimistic, sunny dream of a friend of mine that had not spoken to me for 18 or a year. And I'd missed him. And um, we were having a particularly good time. Uh, but then what seemed like an hour into it, but it was probably just a minute, uh, somebody confronted us in a rather startling manner. And we fought him. We fought him off, not by physical blows, but just by laughing, and running away. Uh, I woke up, and five minutes later, the phone rang, <laughs> and this person called me from a foreign country, and said, "I missed you. <laughs> I was missing you last night, man. So I called you. I hate to do this because you're a bad-tempered old guy, but I missed." <laughs> And in that moment, as much as I can sort of not analyze it, I had this kind of cognizant emptiness happen to me. Mm. Um, I just would throw it all away. All the anxieties, all the what's mm -hmm. going to happen today, you know, and all that because of the sort of spontaneous city that happened, not because I'm a siddha, but because the dream world mm -hmm. uh, woke me up, strangely enough. And um, I told him on the phone, I said, I just dreamt about you. And he said, I'm standing with someone who wants to talk to you. And it's a, a guy called Horace, who I love. He's a producer. And he told me that he, he just found out that he had bone cancer. Mm. It's a long story, this, but there's some sort of meaning to it, I think. And when I told him the exact nature of the dream, which was that my friend and I were happy, and then we fought someone off. Mm. He interpreted that as our love and compassion for him and the desire to get rid of his disease. Mm -hmm. So the whole thing, this whole microcosm, this wow. thing happened in the mm -hmm. space of about five minutes. Mm -hmm. And it changed my day. I, don't, I can't say it changed my life, but it changed my day irreparably. That day was different mm -hmm. uh, because of this series of events. Mm. You know, of dreams and sleep, mm -hmm. realization and healing, mm -hmm. all these things running around, you know. Mm -hmm. In connectedness. Yes, yes. And I think I've thought about this consistently for the past, well, it was five days ago. Yeah. Uh, and it has... Uh, so it at least changed your week. It actually it did, <laughs> Lama. Yes, it did. Uh, but that moment, 
of 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 the the moment I, when when he called me and I saw mm. his name on my phone mm. was so startling to me. Yeah. And everybody's had this experience. I know everyone's had this experience. Mm -hmm. Because when I called a few people that day to tell them this, they said, oh, yeah, that happened to me two weeks ago. And sort of reduced it to sort of like a, a you know, a, a normal thing, which it isn't. But as you say, it, I thought it was magic. But of course, it's not magic. It is the ground of being. You know, that, that's why I just went on yeah. and on about, you know. <laughs> it, well, it, and I, I, think, I think what is moving to you about it is it, it came out of a feeling of disconnection from this person. And then it's such a deep, knowing of that there is a connection and that you can trust that yeah. yes precisely yes i say yes to that yes 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 <laughs> yes back to the trust yes it's mm -hmm. funny because uh ramdas at one time we did something earlier this year uh around uh, a little bit of a workshop around death and dying with Roshi Halifax, and uh, he was describing, it got into a little bit about love and death, and he was describing the love in his first experience of being with Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji, and he was describing the love, and he got right into the middle of it, in that he, it was being expressed through his being in that moment, it was such a powerful feeling. And he got caught up in it, and all he could say was, God, he was just so empty, so <laughs> empty. So he repeated, so empty, several times. And then it got me to remember, oh my God, right, that is exactly what that experience was. So everything that you said in your description of, of, of emptiness or shunyata, Mm -hmm. It was so much our, our personal experience with this being. Mm -hmm. And and then David's experience that he just related, and the idea that th these things do happen to us, and mm -hmm. we need to recognize them, I'm sure we do, and, and, and like you just said, trust in that. Uh, that's our natural place, so uh, wonderful. Yeah, and when when somebody is in that field you could say because it is a f kind of like a field of being like maharaji i don't know if i should say was or is probably is yeah um that field is something that you can enter and that's what happened to ramdas is he entered that field and what he's Calling emptiness is freedom. It's it's it, it's a freedom from himself that's provided by Maharaji's field, mm. and that's what we call in in Tibetan. It's called jinlap, which means gift waves. Mm -hmm. I never heard and that. Yeah, it's it's usually translated as blessings, but the word jin means to give, and lap is 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 waves. It's it's the same wave like you know in a ocean. It's the same word, and this is what I experienced around like the sixteenth Karmapa was my root mama, Kalurabache. Oh, you know 
my mom is, knows that era. We were so fortunate to be in India when we were. Uh, literally waves of blessings and to sit in that changes our minds and changes our our being and it it changes it permanently not that we continually feel that but having felt it and having been there our being is infused with that at some level and of course there's a longing for it and that's why you know around maharaji everyone wanted to be as close as possible like can i get in your lap you know? <laughs> but um yeah it's 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 we want that but i think what we have to realize is that that is our true nature and that you know we have to practice you know you can't just ride on the coattails of the guru <laughs> you know I'll just be with you and you know then it'll all be okay and I think that was sort of the gift of Maharaj's death in a way yeah. was you know the grass bit being with him physically anymore and so everyone had to kind of fall back either into bhakti and devotion and experience of union in that sense or into some kind of practice and and that community you know, everybody's done different kinds of practice and developed their disciplines, uh, sometimes um, had hard times, had, you know, issues and so on. But it's not really helpful for the guru just to have everyone, you know, just want to be with them all the time, you know, because it, then it's not developing that in, in themselves. Absolutely, we're at the uh, at the end of our time. But before, uh, just we have a few minutes, and perhaps you can take us into the space that uh, the gift waves <laughs> presents. Please, uh, if you don't mind, for a few mm. minutes, and we can close with this. Mm.
being in the center of our own mandala. The center of the mandala is in our heart, our heart chakra. We lose that center and we become fragmented. So coming back to the heart brings us into the center of our mandala. And as we meet the mandala of others, mandala of the world, and stay in that center which is empty, luminous, and really all-pervasive. It's been beautiful to be with you today. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, Lama. Thank you, thank you so much. Spend this time with you. And uh, for people who want to uh, be in touch, there are great, great programs at Tara Mandala in Colorado, uh, Southern Colorado, Crestone. And, uh, no, not Crestone. Not Crestone. Where is Pagosa it? Springs. Oh, Pagosa Springs. Okay. Not far from Crestone, though. Well, it's two and a half hours. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah. I haven't been there. That's why I need to come. Yes, Raghu. Yes, I do. Um, but uh, for, for getting in touch with you, let's mm-hmm. give a website. Yeah. Uh, it's Tara Mandala, T A R A M A N D A L A dot org, O R G. And the other thing that I might mention while we're here is um, the um, right now there's an online course that's Mm. just being launched Mm. on feeding feeding your demons, and it's a course that can lead to uh, certification as a facilitator of feeding your demons, which we didn't talk about specifically today, but it's it's generally a way to, of transforming our shadow into an ally. And so this is this is the book, Feeding Your Demons, and um, there's an online course that's happening right now, and on the website or on Facebook too. We're very active on Facebook. Tara Mandala Retreat Center, and also Lama Sultramaleone. So can find out more either of those places. So is still the course is available still, even though it's on now? Yes. Yeah. No, it's still, it's still open. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's yep. something we can share on uh, MindPod Network. We shall Thank do you. that and org, uh, And let everybody know this is a very powerful practice. And it's something... We did. You did a wonderful meditation, Tonglen meditation, um, the last uh, podcast that we did with you quite some time ago, over a year ago, I believe. And uh, so, uh, people with can, feeding your demons, right? Yeah, yes. with feeding yeah. your demons. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so please, please take advantage, everybody who's listening out there. Uh, this is, and there's a few different practices that you gave here, albeit brief, but very powerful that people can do in their just daily lives and I think that that are very helpful. So uh, really thank you for that, 
Lama, and uh, we shall, uh, we're going to have you as soon as possible see you again. Thank you. You know, one of the beautiful things about our world today is this feeling of the etheric community. Mm. And you're doing such beautiful work with that. And it's really a pleasure to be part of what you're doing. And so I want to thank you for, for what you're doing with Mind Rolling. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. We love you, and we'll, yeah, we love you. we'll see you next time. Au revoir. De bonne chance. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>